Colossians 1, we're going to be in verses 15 to 20. And uh, I, I say 15 to 20, as you know, we've been walking through this section of Scripture over the last three weeks now and uh, been breaking it down really slowly. So the first week, we looked at verses 15 to 17. Last week, we looked at verse 18. And then this week, we're going to finish out what is considered a Christ-centered hymn in the Scriptures by looking at verses 19 to 20. So 15 to 20 is historically understood to be an early Christian hymn. And it's possible that Paul modified some of it in order to uh, teach the doctrine that he particularly wanted to teach to the church in Colossae. But in any case, it does present itself as a sort of hymn. And so I'm going to read the whole text for us again this morning, and then we'll pray and jump specifically into verses 19 to 20 for our purposes today. Let's read this from the word of the Lord, starting in verse 15. He is talking about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And then in him, All things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you as the God of light and ask you to give light by your word. Lord, we know that where men sin against you, where men, even Adam and Eve, first sinned against you, it was a disregard for your word. It was a disregard of the truth that you had revealed to them. They chose to go their own way rather than listening to the words that you said. And that always will, has, will continue to lead men astray to do that very thing. And so God, I ask that as your people who have been saved by your grace, we would not do that this morning. We would bring ourselves as we do each week under your word and submission to you as our king. Lord, teach us your word. And Lord, we know that your word is living and active, that it is powerful. And God, I pray that it would be a power in the lives of each person that's in this room this morning, that you would convict us of sin, that you would renew our hope, our trust, our faith in Jesus alone. He is our only hope for salvation. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would enable me this morning to magnify Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We want to worship Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that by the Spirit, that would be what happens in our hearts as we gaze and wonder at your word. And this text is so beautiful, so glorious. It shows us the nature of Christ so clearly. Lord, help us to read, help us to understand, and help us to worship as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm glad that things just so happened this morning to work out where we recited the Nicene Creed together. As you know, if you were with us week after week, we've been alternating reciting creeds. We'll alternate reciting the Nicene Creed, and then we'll go and recite the Apostles' Creed. And each time that we recite that creed, we'll often explain a little bit about it, but we haven't gone into much detail as to the exact kind of origins of the Nicene Creed, and perhaps even the particular reason why we continue to recite it week after week. And so I want to start this morning by giving you a little bit of the story behind the document. And there is a story that often gets confused in our context here in Provo, Utah. So there's a few things that I just want to make clear. The Nicene Creed originated in the first church-wide ecumenical council that took place in A.D. 325. And the reason that the church and all the leaders in the church got together at Nicaea and in uh, 325 was to quote from Dr. Philip Carey in his recent volume on the Nicene Creed, because ancient Christians were appalled 
Terry goes on to note, a teacher in one of the most influential churches in the world was trying to get them to speak of Christ and to say things like, there was once, a, uh, there was, a, there was once when he, being Jesus, was not. And he came to be out of nothing. To say there was once when he was not would be to say that he's not eternal like God the Father, that he came into being from non-existence just like all of God's creatures. That would mean that he is not really God at all, but one of the things that God made. To say this would be to say that what Christians have been doing all along, worshiping Jesus as Lord, as the King of kings, would be to turn him into something that is to be like what the pagans worship. Worshiping something that's not fully, truly, ultimately God. The Nicene Creed was written to say no in the strongest possible terms to that kind of Christian paganism. Now, if you know your church history, you know that the influential teacher was a guy named Arius. And he was a priest at one of the churches, and he began to teach that Jesus was a created thing, just like all of these other created things. Yes, maybe he had attained some level of divinity, but ultimately, he was just like us. And this was so concerning to so many of the leaders of the church that they decided together, we need to do something to deal with this problem that Arius has created. You see, from the outset, everyone in the church understood that Arius' teaching was unorthodox. That means it wasn't the traditionally accepted teaching. Arius wasn't in line with the truth that had been passed down from generation to generation in the early church. And that's why a council of all of the church leaders getting together was so desperately needed. Because too many people were starting to adopt this teaching that Arius was teaching and the church recognized we need to stop this because it's a damning heresy and we need to ensure that it's no longer going to spread in churches throughout the world. Now let me just be clear on one thing that I just said there. The Christian church has always believed that there are certain truths that you must confess to have any confidence that you're truly a Christian. There are certain truths you must affirm in order to have any assurance that you are saved and that you are truly a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that you rightly confess all of those beliefs from the moment that you become a Christian, but if you are a Christian, then you must conform your doctrine to what the Bible actually teaches. And this is especially essential on truths that were articulated in things like the Nicene Creed. You see, the early church understood there might be peripheral doctrines, other things that we could disagree on, but there has to be a fundamental standard, what the early church called the rule of faith, that everyone affirms in order to be considered truly Christian. Now, if you don't affirm all of those perfectly right at the outset, we see that, that that's okay. The, the pattern of the Christian life is that when you are corrected in those things, you will change your belief to conform to the truth of Scripture and affirm what Scripture teaches rather than holding on to whatever that heretical doctrine was. I think one just example that we see of this in the New Testament is with Apollos in Acts 18. You know, Apollos was a dynamic preacher, a wonderful teacher. And he identified himself as a Christian, but was still teaching things that were sub-Christian, that were incorrect according to true doctrine. And so what happens to Apollos? Well, Priscilla and Aquila, who are just lay people yet leaders in the church, take him aside and say, Apollos, you're not teaching the word of God rightly. You need to change what you're teaching. And you know what Apollos does? He didn't go the way that Arius went. He said, I see what you're saying in the word of God, and I am going to change my teaching to conform with what God's word truly says. And so in a similar manner as Apollos, we need to recognize that we often need to be corrected and change our beliefs. But like I said, Arius didn't do that. When Arius was corrected, and he was corrected by many other Christians, instead of changing his belief to conform with the orthodox standard of the faith, to conform to what the scriptures actually teach, he instead hardened his heart, continued in his damning belief, and continued 
teaching this damning belief, denying the very nature of Jesus Christ as the God whom we ought to worship. Arius' teaching turned Jesus into just a man, a man who is really pretty much just like us. He wasn't the one eternal true God who created us, not in Arius' mind. So the council in Nicaea happened to make universal and clear to all Christians everywhere what we must confess regarding the nature of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating when you study church history, every local church actually had creeds and confessions that they would recite together on Sunday mornings when they gathered, just like we do. Do you know that when we do what we're doing and reciting creeds, we are passing down the tradition that was started in the early church and has continued in many churches all the way up until this day. There is a standard of truth that we all confess and say, I believe this about God. I believe this about Jesus Christ. We're called to preserve that truth. And that's what the Council of Nicaea was all about. It wasn't something that the church decided, let's get together and cook up some new doctrine. It wasn't something that the church said, Constantine is pressuring us, and so because the emperor is pressuring us to come up with this standard of faith, we better come up with a standard of faith. Do you realize that Christians were happy to be martyred for the truth that they confessed? They weren't scared of Constantine. They weren't going to bow to any sort of political pressure. No, these church leaders knew that getting Jesus right was a matter of eternal life or death for the souls of men. And the reason that these church leaders knew that is because that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus is the one who tells the church, you have to get me right. Listen to what he says. This is Jesus in John 8, 23 and 24. Jesus said to them, talking to the Jews who were refusing to believe the testimony that Jesus was preaching, which was that he was God, Jesus says to them, you are from below, okay? That's what he's telling these Jewish leaders. You're a created thing. You're from below. I am from above. You are of this world. Jesus says, I am not of this world. And then listen to what Jesus says. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's the words of Jesus. That's not the words of an early church council in Nicaea. That's the words of Jesus. And when Jesus says that you must believe that I am he, or you will die in your sins, the he there is clearly a reference to God. Jesus is telling the Jews, unless you believe that I am the eternal God that you ought to worship, you will die in your sins. In other words, there are truths you must confess about Christ to have any confidence that you're worshiping the true Christ. So I hope that you can see why the Nicene Creed matters. Because the creed represents the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It articulates the truths that the Bible so clearly teaches. It, it synthesizes the whole teaching of the Bible as faithfully as it can to make clear the revelation about God's own nature. The God who made us wants to ensure that we're worshiping him and not some other demonic spirit. So he has given us the scriptures in which he's made himself known so that we can rightly discern who he is from these scriptures and put it in things like the Nicene Creed where the church stands up and says together, I believe. And what we see from what Jesus says in John 8 is that our only hope of salvation is that we are believing in the right God who can actually save us. We've seen as we've been walking through this text the truth that a false God, friends, has no power to save. A false God has no power to save. If you fall out of an airplane with a backpack on, it makes a difference whether that backpack is a parachute or a diaper bag. Okay? It, if you swing across a treacherous gorge to escape a grizzly bear that's chasing you down with death in his eyes, it makes a difference whether you 
grab onto a rope to swing across that gorge or a long strand of spaghetti. Okay, one's going to get you across, one's not. If you're sick with a disease there's a, there's a, and there's a medicine that you know can heal, heal you, it makes a difference whether the pill bottle that you get is actually filled with a medicine that is the solution to your need versus a bunch of Tic Tacs that look like the same thing but aren't the same thing at all. Friends, a false Jesus has no power to save. And Jesus himself says, you must believe that I am he. Specifically in the context saying, you must get my divinity right. You must get that I am your God. That I am the God that the Jews have been worshiping ever since the beginning. That there is one God, there is no other God. That God is made known as a triune God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus comes, it's a revelation of God to man saying, I am He. If you want to be saved from your sins, you better believe it. Now if you were to look at the Nicene Creed a little bit closer you'll see that it's split into three major articles. The first article is on God the Father, and it's a relatively short article that you read. It's only three lines long or so. And then the third article at the end of the creed is on the Holy Spirit, and it's also a lot more on the shorter side. But the second article of the Nicene Creed is on God the Son, and that article by far has the most, most length. Now, if you recall, as we've been studying through Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the hymn that we've been looking at in these verses also has two parts to it. The first part of the hymn is in verses 15 to 17, and then the second part of the hymn is in verses 18 to 20. Now, in the first part of the hymn, what we saw is that the eternal nature of the Son of God is articulated. Paul wants it to be crystal clear, the Jesus that we're talking about here is the eternal God, God from God, light from light. And then in the second part, Paul is covering the incarnational nature of Jesus. The incarnational nature. It's covering Jesus' human nature, the work of the Son of God as a man is articulated. Now here's what I want you to see. That creed that we quote is not, again, the invention of some doctrine that was created 300 years after Jesus. No, the Nicene Creed is a statement of faith from Christians who've rightly interpreted passages like Colossians 1, 15 to 20. That's what it is. In the creed, the section on the Son of God is divided into two parts, just like our text in Colossians. Okay, if you remember the creed, in the first part, we confess what? That Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God who was begotten before the Father before all ages. In other words, he didn't come to exist at some point in the ages. He has been the begotten son eternally. He's always been with the Father before anything existed. We confess he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is begotten, not made. Begotten does not mean he's created. Having the same being as the Father through whom all things came to be. And you see those ideas clearly articulated, many of them, in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he's existed as the divine image, as the begotten son from before all time. He is the firstborn of all creation, we saw in those verses, meaning that he is king over all creation. Firstborn does not mean literal firstborn in a Jewish understanding. We covered that. Firstborn means king. It means the one who has all rights, all authority. We saw that Paul says, for by him, who? Jesus. By him, all things were created. Okay, that's why Arius was a heretic. Because he said Jesus was part of the creation. No, the Bible clearly says he created all things. For through him, by him, and unto him, all things are created. Now then back to the Nicene Creed. If we were to look at part two on the Son of God, it gives us the biblical teaching on the incarnate Christ, on the enfleshed Christ. It articulates Jesus' nature as the God-man. Listen to it. For who for us human beings and for our salvation, this is talking about the eternal Son of God, came down from heaven and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. 
That means he wasn't human, he became human. He was eternal God who became man. And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. Okay, that's the second half of the creed. Now, Colossians 1, 18 to 20, which we've been looking at, we're going to finish looking at today, Paul is testifying to the nature and the work of Christ as the God-man as the God who came down from heaven and became man. So last week, we considered in depth that Jesus is God who came down from heaven to establish his rule in this sin-broken world through the church. That he came down from heaven so that he could conquer sin and death on our behalf in our place. And thus, he ought to be worshipped by all men as the preeminent Christ. He has the highest position of all creation. He is the new and the better Adam, is what we looked at last week. Or to put it the way that a modern hymn that I love puts it, Christ is the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse. Then rising, he crushed the serpent's head. That's what we looked at last week. Now this week, we see Paul tell us of Jesus Christ's nature as the God-man. And then he tells us of Jesus' work as the God-man. And those are going to be our two main points to consider. Pretty simple today, overall. The nature of the God-man, point number one that Paul makes. And then second, the work of the God-man. Look with me first at verse 19 in this hymn, Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, as with many great truths that we get from the Apostle Paul, we need to know our Old Testaments to know what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. Okay, remember that Paul was a knowledgeable Jew, and as such, he knew his Bible. Paul knew his Old Testament. And like all the other apostles, Paul came to understand the, the nature of Jesus, not apart from the Old Testament, but by coming to understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. And many of those promises about Jesus were made in the Psalms, which, as we looked at a few weeks ago, is the psalm book, the song book of every good Jew. Every good Jew would have known these psalms by memory, would have sung these psalms aloud, and every Christian as well, because the Christian church, of course, takes all of the Old Testament that the Jews had taken as Scripture and still upholds it as true Scripture, which teaches us the truth of who Jesus is. So, let's look at what Paul is drawing upon, I believe, when he says something like we see in verse 19, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Turn with me to Psalm 68. Let's get your Bibles moving. Psalm 68. Psalm 68. And as you turn there, just know that the wording of our English Bibles, I don't think helps us make this connection as obviously as the Greek would. Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been the Bible of the early church, the connection is a lot more obvious. Because this psalm, this psalm is the only place in the entire Bible where we have the two words, well-pleased and dwell, used in the same verse. And those are the same words that Paul uses to describe the nature of Jesus in Colossians 1.19. So let's look then at Psalm 68. And I'm going to read verse 15 all the way down to verse 23 together. And just know, this is what I think Paul has in his mind when he is talking about Jesus being the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. David writes in Psalm 68, Starting verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. 
even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. You know what David is writing this psalm for? David is writing this psalm in Psalm 68 to commemorate the moment when God's tabernacle was set up on Mount Zion. And they're looking across the valley at this other mountain that might look bigger, that might look grander, where temples to a false god were built. And David is saying, you think that looks so great? This Mount Zion, this mountain where God dwells, this is the mountain from which all salvation will come. This is the mountain from which death will be defeated forevermore. This is the mountain on which the presence of God dwells. So here's the significance of all this that David is getting at. The hope of Israel was that their God was a good and gracious king who is going to dwell with them in his covenantal relational presence. And that presence of God that would be uniquely experienced by the people of God in Israel was a presence that was holy and joyful, a presence that would bring tremendous blessing to all of God's people. But as you know, because God is a holy God, and the world is a world dominated by sin, that particular covenantal relational presence of God came down from heaven only in the place that God had prepared for that to occur. That particular holy, unique presence of God only dwelled in what was called the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle. That's where God's perfect presence was with his people. Eventually, of course, that got transferred from the tabernacle into the temple. But that Holy of Holies, as you probably know, was only entered into one time a year by the high priest of Israel on the Day of Atonement. And it was in that room where God had his people place what was called the Ark of the Covenant, which was a sort of storage chest of different sacred objects. And then on top of that Ark of the Covenant was what was called the Mercy Seat, And that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was the exact location where the covenantal presence of God dwelled with his people. So every year, if you know your Jewish history, the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies after an extensive cleansing ritual, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat from an unblemished lamb, and that blood was considered to be an atoning sacrifice to God for the sins of Israel. It was the way in the Old Testament of symbolically dealing with the people's sin so that their holy God can continue dwelling with them in his perfect, joyful presence. Now, why does all that matter? Why does that matter? You might be sitting there thinking, why does all of this random theological knowledge and the history of things going on in Israel have anything to do with my life? Well, here's why, church. Because you are a created being. And you are created to thrive when you are dwelling in your creator's holy, loving, joyful presence. You are a creature who is made to draw near to your holy God. Okay, think about the comfort that a baby experiences in the arms of his or her mother. Think about that. Her presence makes a difference to that baby. In fact, you know, we've actually labeled the reaction that a baby has when he or she is separated from a parent. What do we call that? Separation anxiety, right? Babies experience separation anxiety when they're removed from the presence of their parents and they begin to fear that their parents aren't going to return to them. There's one children's hospital that details the reactions of separation anxiety by telling us that a baby will often cry when a parent leaves the room. Or they'll be extra clingy and whiny when they're in a situation where they sense that they're about to be separated from their parent. 
Or, or they may wake up in the night and begin to cry because they have a sense of aloneness because their parent is not there with them. Or they might refuse to go to sleep at night if a parent leaves them in their bed alone and just cry and whine. And what doctors say is they're experiencing what's called separation anxiety. Now, church, the Bible is telling us that in our fallen state, we are experiencing separation anxiety because we're separated from the joyful, loving, peaceable presence of our creator, God. Only the difference is that God isn't the one who has separated himself from us, per se. We are the ones who have separated ourselves from him by way of our sin. But what we see happening in the Bible is that God made a way in the Old Testament here, to restore his presence on earth through the tabernacle and the temple, which what we see now in Colossians was only a foreshadowing of the ultimate way that God would restore broken humanity back into his joyful presence. And you know how he did that? He did it by coming down to this broken earth as a human himself. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians. In Christ Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Old Testament authors would use this sort of language about the temple all over the place. They would say that God's presence filled the temple, that his glory filled the temple. And now the presence of God enters the world in full in the person of of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying of Jesus. That Jesus is the holy presence of God in the world. That that holy presence that once used to dwell in the holy of holies on the mercy seat now took on the form of man and walked among men. You got to understand that this sort of a concept would have blown the mind of any Jew. But that's exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus. He was that covenantal presence taken on flesh. Jesus was God in flesh. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. He is the pure, undefiled, holy presence of God filling a human person and walking among men in the world. So you see, what we have Paul doing here is he's once again identifying Jesus in the strongest Jewish terms possible, as being truly God and truly man simultaneously. His divine nature and his human nature, it didn't ever mix, but they both existed as a side-by-side -side reality in the incarnate Christ. It's a stunning and a glorious doctrine. And if you want to read more about it, there's you know more pages than probably could even fit in this room written on on that. But you may wonder, you may be sitting there wondering, what does Christ's fullness in his temple body have to do with me? What does it have to do with us? And the answer to that question, friends, is everything. It has everything to do with you and your life in 21st century America. Okay, for one thing, all of the restlessness of your soul is a direct result of the separation and anxiety that you are experiencing because you are not running to Jesus in your weakness to know the joy of God's presence in your life. Christ came into the world so that God's presence could be restored to his people. And do you know how he accomplished that? He was both the true temple and he was the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. He came and accomplished the restoration of you to your creator God by shedding his own blood as the final and complete sacrifice for sin, which would be offered on the mercy seat up in heaven on behalf of his people. Christ came to deal with your sin so that you could be fully and completely forgiven and made clean. And not only that, also credited all the righteousness that he earned in his life, which restores you into relationship with your created God. In Christ, you can know the joy of God's presence once again. And then you know what Jesus did? He ascended into heaven. 
And after he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples even before, I'm going to send a helper for you. He, he tells his disciples, it's going to be better for you that I go away because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you in the world. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit makes that presence, the covenantal relational presence of God, he makes that a reality in the people of God. God fills his people with the presence of Christ by the Spirit. Okay, now, now, perhaps you're here this morning, and you are so deeply caught up in the anxiety of the world that you desperately want to know how you can receive this sort of joyful presence of God into your life. How, how do I begin to experience this sort of presence, you may be asking? Well, let me tell you where it starts. In order to know where it starts, I think you really need to go back to the Garden of Eden where man and woman fell into sin. Because you remember that before man and woman fell into sin, Adam and Eve, what? They lived in the garden in God's perfect relational covenantal presence. And it was their rebellion against that that got them cast out of the garden. But how? How did that presence get disrupted? What happened in the garden? Well, God's covenantal presence was disrupted when Adam and Eve believed the lies of Satan. And you remember what the lies of Satan were? The lie that Satan told Adam and Eve was that man didn't really need to live according to God's truth. Adam told Eve, or, or Satan told Adam and Eve, you need to be autonomous. You need to be set free from God's rule and standard. That's where freedom lies. So disregard God's rules. Maybe you can partially follow them, but not all the way. Disregard it. Go live how you want to live. And do to that first sin of rejecting the truth of God for a lie, man has been cast out of the garden and has been living in separation and anxiety ever since. So do you know what the way back to God is, friends? This is such a beautiful, simple statement that you need to know. The way back to God's joyful presence is to confess the truth. That's it. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You see what's happening there? We return to the presence of God with a reversal of the lie that man believed in the garden. Whereas man was banished from the relational presence of God through Adam and Eve believing the lie of the serpent that their way was better than God's ways and that they should try to live autonomous and separate from him, God's relational presence returns to man when man banishes the lie of Satan out of our beings and confesses belief in Christ. We believe that he is God who as a man died for our sins, that he came and died and rose again from the dead, that he ascended into heaven and is now seated in the heavenly realm where he reigns as our Lord and God. And when we confess Christ, what we are doing is we are expressing that his relational presence has come into our hearts by faith, where we now reject the tyrannical lies of Satan, which would tell us to try to live dependent upon our own self, dependent upon our own good works, dependent upon our own good nature, or whatever we want to think that man is, where we reject that and say, no, my dependence is only and ever on Jesus and what he's done for me. We trust Jesus for all of our spiritual needs, for all of our physical needs, for all of our mental needs, for all of our emotional needs. We make him preeminent in our lives where we say, Satan, you're wrong. We can't live apart from God. We live only when we are dependent upon him. He is the very source of our life. So we reject the lie and we, we submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. And that, that, my friends, is just the beginning of your Christian life that I'm talking about there. That's just the beginning. Because the rest of our Christian lives become all about increasing the presence of God in our lives and in our churches. Now you may be sitting there asking, how do I increase the presence of God in my life? I want more joy in God. 
I want more peace in God. I want more knowledge of God. I want more rest in Him and in His finished work that He has accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, how do I get that? Quite simply, it's by being a people who are ruled by His Word and who live in real constant relationship with our God through prayer. Remember, God's presence was disrupted in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disbelieved the Word of God. Now contrast that to Jesus, who when he was tempted by Satan, responded to Satan with what? The Word of God. Jesus quotes Scripture to Satan to reject Satan's lies. You see, God's presence rules over his people in the world through his word. That's how his presence is manifest here and now. It's through his truth. You want to know how God is with us right now? It's because we're looking at the word. We're looking at his truth. That's how we know his presence. That's how we grow in his presence. Presence, we cling to his word, we cling to his truth, we treasure his word, we live according to his word, and as we do, his presence increases in our life. We come to know more joy, we come to believe less lies, we come to cling to Jesus all the more. He becomes bigger in our lives, and the problems of this world become apparently less and less to us in our everyday Christian walks. And so as Christians, we have to be, friends, people of the Bible, We have to be people of the Bible. God has given us his words as the means by which he will dwell with us in the church. And the Spirit of God, do you know what the Spirit of God does for us? The Spirit of God comes into our hearts and he illumines our minds to understand the truth of the word. He opens our eyes to understand the scriptures. But we also see, aside from being ruled by his word, a pattern in the Old Testament of God's people directing their prayers toward the temple. Meaning that we direct our prayers toward Christ now, who is the true temple, because he is the mediator between God and man. So the presence of God also increases in our lives and in our church as we grow as a people of constant prayer. Okay, don't forget that this entire passage in Colossians is a hymn of truth that flows out of Paul's prayer that the Colossians would be filled. Colossians, I am praying that you would be filled with what? A knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we need to be a people who know the presence of God through the word and through prayer. And you best not ever forget that, church. That's how you dwell in God's presence. He has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known to us. And so we can know him as we meditate upon his precepts, upon his truth, upon the beauty that's found here. If you are finding yourself joyless and lifeless and peaceless, if you're finding yourself without hope, I'm telling you it's because you are not loving and dwelling in the word of God enough in your own life. You're not dwelling in loving God enough in this church. If this church is to be a church where the presence of God is, we best be a people who are obsessed with our Bibles. Let me just make some really practical applications of what this ought to look like in Christian community. Are you studying the Bible with anyone? You don't even need a formal gathering that's organized by the church in order to do this. Did you know that? Did you know that you can study the Bible just with your spouse? You can study the Bible just with another brother or sister in Christ who you say, let's get together and let's dissect the text that the sermon was on this past week every week on Monday mornings. Let's do that. Let's be in the word together because that's what God's people do because as we're in his word, his presence is among us. And that is the source of life is knowing and believing the truth that's been revealed right here. And then we also pray together. We pray together. I mean, church, we haven't implored you guys in a while, so I'm just going to implore you again. 9.15, Sunday mornings, in the fellowship hall, we pray. We pray. We direct our prayers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing so, his presence is among us. 
we want more of God's presence in our life, then we need to pray together. You need that in your own life individually, but we need that corporately as a church as well. We want to be characterized as a church of the word and of prayer. If we're known for anything in this city, let us be known for those two things. Because that's how God's presence is in our midst. All right, now, let's consider next the work, not just the nature of Christ incarnate, but the work of Christ incarnate, which is our second point this morning, the work of the God-man. Look with me at verse 20. Colossians 1, verse 20, says this, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, this is a stunning verse. This is a shocking verse, even. It's a verse that centers Jesus as truly being the purpose of all history. This is a verse that shows us that Jesus is the one through whom all creation will be restored to its proper order. The crucifixion, Paul believes and teaches, and thus we ought to believe and affirm and hold to, the crucifixion is the means by which God triumphed over the chaos in this world by dealing with human sin, and thus by the blood of Jesus, Paul says, all things will be reconciled. And we know the creation needs to be reconciled because sin has so deeply disrupted its order. That isn't to say that all order in the world is gone, church. Okay, by God's common grace, there's enough order that he maintains in the world for us to have society. Okay, without God's common grace, we would have all killed each other by now. He, he gives enough common grace to man that we can continue to exist and function. And the reason that common grace is there is to give men and women the opportunity to turn to God's special grace and repent and trust in Jesus as their only hope for eternal salvation. That's why God is allowing you, if you are not yet trusting in Christ, to continue to live and breathe and have being. You have a chance still to right now turn your heart toward Jesus Christ, repent and trust him as your God and king. But we don't have to look very hard to realize that in spite of God's common grace, this world isn't exactly a peaceful place. And so if a new creation is to come, Total reconciliation of the old creation is needed. Here's what I mean by that. All things need to be restored to their proper order. All things need to be restored rightly in relation to their creator, God. And Paul says right here that God will reconcile all things through Christ and to him. Now, what does all things mean here? We've got to ask that question, don't you? Because some people have used this verse to try to argue that God is going to save all people from their sins. And I just want to make very clear, that's not what Paul is saying at all. Because Paul was a very logical man who would not dare contradict himself. And he says very clearly later on in Colossians 3.6 and 3.25 that Christ is going to bring judgment on all those who are not in him by faith. So this isn't saying that God's going to save everyone. What this is saying, quite simply, is that Christ's work is a work that guarantees the restoration of all things to a new creation. On a cosmic level, everything that sin has disordered, everything that sin has caused chaos to be the defining reality within all of that stuff, it's going to be brought to its proper order in Christ. All chaos is going to cease. All hostility is going to be banished. All sin is going to be done away with. So evildoers who have not trusted in Christ will be punished. That's how it, they're going to be put to, to, to an end as far as the chaos that they can create in the new creation. They're going to be punished according to their iniquities. And we see that even evil spirits that have been allowed temporary power in this world right now are going to be finally and forever bound when Christ puts them in their place at the end of the age. See, when Jesus is done saving his people, he's going to come and judge the living and the dead. 
And when he does so, he's going to bring peace and restore peace to all creation. The scholar G.K. Beale writes this. He says, the Old Testament refers to eschatological, that means in time peace, involving peaceful harmony between antagonistic humans, hostile animals, and the fertility of creation as a sure sign that peace has come. Okay, so just to give you an example of what Paul's getting at here. Think of how hostile animals are, okay? I don't know about you guys in your house, but we watch a lot of nature documentaries in the Scoggin home. And you get samples in every nature documentary of just how hostile the animal world is toward one another. In fact, we often have to go into full-blown counseling sessions with our children when we have to watch the baby zebra get devoured by a crouching lion. It's tragic. It's traumatic, right? You just watch these nature documentaries and you see these animals fighting with one another, cutting each other open, causing blood to be spewed out all over the place. But that's a reality in nature. So if you hide that from what you ought to see in a nature documentary, you're going to have a skewed perspective of just how disordered the animal creation is. Animals eat other animals. Our world is filled with death and decay, and hostility. But the new creation that Christ is going to restore is one that Isaiah describes in chapter 11 of his book like this. Isaiah says, in that day, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Your lions are going to be going after straw in that day, not after baby zebras. Kids will like that idea. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Christ, this is, or church, this is happening because of Christ's restorative work in the world. He's going to restore everything that broke, that is broken because of human sin, including the disorder and chaos in the animal world. This is good news. There's no longer going to be any fear over any animal that you may walk up to in the middle of the woods. It also means that no more pets are going to die. There's going to be no more men trampled underfoot by raging bulls on farms anywhere in this world. There's going to be no more lions that will be devouring any more prey. All in the world will be at peace. But this will certainly not only be the case for the animal world. Everything that brings destruction upon humans will one day be completely done away with. Church, what this is saying is that all death and decay will be eradicated among the human creation. In the new creation, friends, cancer will not exist. In the new creation, cells will never mutate again because our bodies will have no need for any cells within them to divide and be replaced because cells before that had somehow died or been damaged. You won't have any dead cells because death will be done away with. Cancer will not exist in the new creation. In the new creation, your joints will not grind down upon themselves as gravity eventually takes its toll on your aging body. The, the cartilage between your joints is not going to get worn out, causing you ceaseless back pain that at times can seem unbearable. In the new creation, your organs will not fail. Your minds will not grow foggy. You won't have those annoying stress headaches anymore. The rapid heart palpitations that send you into a frizzy will no longer exist. Everything in your physical body will be perfect. Church, you'll be able to run. You'll be able to skip and rejoice forever and ever in the place that God has prepared for you. You'll be able to sing and to dance with joy and with peace that is literally unspeakable in this current broken world. But don't just think about what your body is going to be like in the new creation. 
The peace that Jesus brings also means that all men and all women will be at peace with one another as well. You know that tension that you feel in your heart when someone offends some source of identity that you cling to? Perhaps it's your identity as the smart guy. Someone offends you, making you feel like you might not be as smart as you thought you were. So you react and bite back at them because it makes you angry. Or perhaps it's ethnic identity, common one in our age, is it not? Have you ever felt looked down upon or belittled because of your ethnicity, because of your background? Our our world is one of, of ceaseless division when it comes to these sorts of differences. We get hostile over this stuff. We get hateful over this stuff. We rage at each other over this stuff. We get angry. But in the new creation, church, our identity is going to be so fundamentally and exclusively tied to Christ, our creator, that there will never be relational tension again. All men and women will forever be at perfect peace with one another. You'll never have relational struggles. The source of relational struggles is that inner selfishness. It's when someone offends something that we want to believe about ourselves that may or may not be true. And so we react when we experience that offense within our selfish desires to protect ourselves and defend ourselves. And that ends up leading us to bite and devour other people who are not acting the way we want them to act. That'll be no more. All relational hostility, gone forever. No more fighting, no more heartache, no more disappointment. This means that there's never going to be war again. There will be no raging, no anger, no malice, no envy, no insecurity, no arrogance, no boasting in self, no pride, no anything that damages our love toward God and toward one another. And most importantly, there will be absolutely no hostility at all between us and our creator, God. Friends, in the new creation, we will be walking in the Garden of Eden with our God once again. And as the song that we have sometimes sing together states so beautifully, when on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain, slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ever be his people. All glory be to Christ. Now, here's the thing, FBC Provo. Paul writes to us here in such a way that shows us that the new creation that is coming has already broken into this world in Christ. Yes, we still live in bodies of death. Yes, we still live in bodies that are decaying. But the inner man has already been made new by our union with the resurrected and ascended Christ. So here's what that means for us as a church. We ought to be walking as those who are a foretaste of the new creation even now. People ought to be able to look at your life and see that's a small foretaste of what things are going to be like when God makes all things new. And that's why the church is the place in all the world that ought to shine brightly as a community of peace that declares the truth of God to a hostile world while living in unity with one another. Spiritually, Paul wants you to know you have been raised with Christ if your faith is in him. Do you know that? You've been resurrected spiritually already. And so Paul is going to go on to tell the church in Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Church, do you know that we don't live according to earthly hope? We live according to heavenly realities. I can't even begin to tell you 
all of the ways that believing that and knowing that ought to affect your life on a daily basis. But it's in every way. It's in every way. That means when you have relational strife with another brother or sister in Christ, you ought to be quick to try to discern where in your heart you're being a selfish, foolish, heartless jerk. You ought to be quick to say, where is there sin in me that is causing this lack of peace amongst the people of God? And how do I confess that and seek reconciliation and live according to the new creation that I truly am in Christ? He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our joy. I don't need to try to center my hope and my joy in anything in this world. And do you know what we fight over? Worldly things. That's what churches split over. Worldly things. Things that don't matter. Insisting on our own way. Being selfish. And that ought to never be the case amongst the people of God. And when it is, we've got to be quick to identify it and quick to reconcile and quick to seek peace where there is hostility. That's what the Christian community does. And so as we do that by keeping Christ at the very center of our lives, we find ourselves representing this new creational community that Christ has truly created. We are a foretaste of what's to come. And so when the world looks at us, they ought to see a unique unity, a unique bond, a unique peace, a sort of community that makes no sense to an outside watching world. How in the world can all of those people dwell in community together? It's because our eyes are on Jesus who has resurrected us to an eternal hope. So I don't need to fight. I don't need to battle unless it's on doctrine according to God's truth. That's where we contend for the faith. Let's go on a rant here. But that's a whole other point that needs to be made. To be a person of peace is not to be a person who lays down when heresy is being taught. To be a person of peace is not to be a person who closes your mouth when someone is saying something that is untrue about God. Paul writes elsewhere, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because it is the hope of the gospel found in Christ that creates this new creational sort of peace that is only received in knowing the true Jesus and trusting in him and believing in him. So if you want this world to know the peace of God, you don't do it by shutting your mouth when somebody is speaking something that is untrue about God. That's where we contend, church. That's where we rise up and we show what is true according to what God's word makes true. We don't fight over carpet colors. We don't fight over the temperature of the air that's in the room when we are worshiping on Sunday mornings. We lay down our selfish desires, we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we contend for what's true when we see lies being declared. Our source of unity is the truth of the word of God and nothing else. So that's how we guard the unity of this church and live as the new creational sort of community that we're called to be. That's what we're called to. Now, the two verses that we just looked at, we need to also know just finally, tied directly back to the verse that we looked at last week. And, and this is Paul's reason for saying that Jesus ought to be preeminent in our lives. Jesus ought to be preeminent in our lives. He ought to be first above all. He ought to be King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives because he is fullness of God, the place where the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And he is the one through whom all things will be reconciled to himself through the blood of his cross. Church, Christ will be all to his people. He must be all to his people. Or he will be nothing at all to you on the last day except for judge. He must be your all and your everything. You must trust in him, not as you want him to be in your life, but as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. The one who came down from heaven, who was born of a virgin, who was crucified, who was buried, and who resurrected for us and for our salvation. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And every single person in this room must trust in him afresh today. And that's what we get to remember as we take this meal that we're about to take together. So let me pray. Father, I do pray that our hope would be in you alone. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a people that are characterized by the sort of new creational reality of peace that will one day be final and complete and forever sealed in the new creation as all things are reconciled to Christ. I pray that we would be a representation of that even in the here and now. Lord, I pray that you would bind this community together in unity, that Satan would not be allowed to get any sort of foothold that would disrupt the kind of peace that ought to exist amongst your people. Lord, let us be a people of peace who are ruled by peace, a peace that is according to the truth of your word and not according to getting what we want to have. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in this church, Lord, be glorified in our lives and cause every one of us to submit more to Jesus as King, even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.